So I'm going to go this way. All right. I'll go up with you. Good up. Good up, bad down. Amen. Lord bless you today, brothers and sisters. Take your Bibles out and open them to the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And as you're finding Hebrews chapter 10, I want to tell you a little story, a little personal story that hopefully we're going to see how it fits in here. But um, uh, back in the late 90s, uh, after 95, because it was in 95 when I went to become pastor at, first, at Calvary Baptist Church in Denison, uh, I was pastoring there in Denison. And uh, one of my good friends was uh, a guy that I met very quickly after we, we uh, went there, was a guy by the name of Zenon Garcia. Uh, everybody called him Sammy, Brother Sammy. Sammy was um, the pastor at uh, Iglesia Batista Camino Real, which was a little church just uh, right down the road from, from our church. Camino Real basically translates highway, so it was Highway Baptist Church, and, uh, and uh, they had planted that church. Sammy was the planting pastor of that church uh, down on the highway as it, as it went out of town. We became good friends, and Sammy was from Mexico, and uh, he had uh, actually gone back, and at his hometown, a little, a little village called Naola, he had, uh, he had planted a church. He, was, he had a guy there that uh, uh, he had led to the Lord, and that was the pastor of that little church. And uh, so he would go down regularly and minister there, and he invited me to go with him one time and maybe uh, look for ways that our churches could partner on mission uh, down in Mexico. And so I did. Uh, this was, would have been somewhere around 1997. And uh, uh, his son and my son were the same age. They played soccer together. And so those two boys and myself and Sammy, uh, we went down uh, to Mexico. We traveled down. We crossed the border at McAllen in the Reynosa. And then we uh, uh, drove down to um, uh, Victoria. And then from Victoria, we crossed. There's a part of the Sierra Madre mountain range kind of comes through there. And so we had to make this, uh, this mountain pass crossing over to a little town called Tula, and then from Tula we went out to Naola. And, um, and I wouldn't do this trip again today because it's too dangerous because now the cartels uh, are uh, real active down there, and it's just a dangerous road into central, uh, even down on the border. So I, w I honestly would not go now, and I wouldn't take a group. But back then it was, uh, it was safe traveling in that sense. The, the cartels weren't active and those type of things uh, weren't taking place. But as we crossed the mountains, we went on this uh, little two-lane road, and I wouldn't even call it a highway. It was just a two-lane road that wound its way, uh, you know, down uh, through this valley and then back up the other side. It probably, from as the crow flies from one side to the other, was about 50, 60 miles. It took us four hours on this little on this little two-lane road that went through the mountains. And uh, it was, uh, I, harrowing might not even be a, a good word to describe it. So we'll tell you that um, uh, it was pretty slow going, not just because the road wasn't good, but because there was a lot of traffic on this road. And uh, there were some trucks on it, and uh, you had to, you know, you came up behind a truck, and it was going slow on the grade. And, uh, and then people were passing all over the place, and they were passing going each way. And again, two lane, and there were a lot of switchbacks, a lot of uh, blind turns. And uh, I will tell you, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how else to put it, but I got prayed up on that particular part of the trip. 
I mean, I was praying fervently that we weren't going to get in a head-on collision. There weren't, there weren't any guardrails. And, you know, on this side, it was just kind of a sheer drop-off. On this side, it went up that way. And, and you know, here we are. We're speeding through uh, and just, you know, passing people and blind turns. And I'm just, you know, a couple of times we met other cars. And it honestly, I witnessed a miracle that day, the fact that I didn't get killed or maimed in some way I was just very grateful when we got to the other side I got off and kissed the ground and everything but anyway I was uh, mentioning you know to Sammy uh, a little bit of my fear and trepidation he, he and he kind of says oh you know don't worry no 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 it's God's got this you know it's it's he had a lot of faith he had a lot more faith than I did honestly but um, uh, but at one point he mentioned to me that the locals called that part of the highway get this Camino de la muerta okay now i'm not a i'm not a spanish expert or anything but uh camino i know means road or way muerta means what death right so this was so i said the locals call this part of the highway the way of death he goes oh yeah yeah why is that? Because there's a lot of people that get killed on this thing, right? And which really blessed me, and uh, and again became uh, part of my, you know, testimony. Um, we actually took another group down there uh, a couple of months later, and we went down the the way of death, and again was prayed up. We were in our bus at that time, and honestly, it was crazy. And I had people honestly threaten to uh, you know to hurt me if I ever did anything like that again. But what's really interesting was at that time there a new highway was under construction, and when we went back the next year. That, that highway had been finished, and it was a modern highway. It was four-lane, and it didn't, uh, you know, go down the valley. It kind of went across. There were, there were, uh, 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 there were uh, what, what you call uh, bridges and, uh, and uh, you know, the tunnels and those type of things. And so that four- or five-hour trip turned into about a, about a 40- or 50-minute trip across the mountains on this nice new highway that I personally dubbed Camino de la vida <laughs> the road of life and you know that the difference was amazing i mean on the one you know i mean it was it was treacherous it was it was uh, fear provoking it was uh, it was not a fun time for me but then on the camino de la vida it was it was really refreshing, and it was, uh, especially when I knew, you know, the road that I could have been on, and, and it was, uh, was joy-filled, and it was fun, and, 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 you know, it just made all the difference in the world going from Camino de la Muerta to Camino de la Vida. If I were to explain or try to summarize what the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us as he brings us through this, this, uh, this beautiful, beautiful passage on the life of the Lord Jesus or who Jesus is and what he does for us, I would say it's pretty much what he's trying to communicate is it's the difference between Camino de la Muerta and Camino de la Vida. The difference between death and life or the road of death and the road or the way of life. When you are with Jesus, when you know Jesus. And remember, his whole point has been, keep your eyes on the prize, and the prize is Jesus. And he really is all those things that, that you can, he is superior to uh, 
uh, to the angels and superior to Moses, superior to the law and superior to the high priest and everything else. He's this great high priest. All these, however you can talk about Jesus in the superlative, he is it. But the big thing is, and, and we've got to talk about how does it apply to my life, which is vitally important. Whenever you come to the scripture, sooner or later, you have to apply it to your life, Right? And if you could apply it to your life, it would be the difference between going down the road of death and the road of life. In fact, that's exactly what he says in this passage of Scripture. Pick up with me in the, the 19th verse. He says, therefore, therefore. Now, I've said this before, and I'm not the first one that said this. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what is it therefore? And so what you have to do is you really don't want to start on a verse that starts with therefore. You need to back up. So let's back up just a minute to verse 15 and find out what we're there for. He says in verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. Quote from Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. This is the new covenant now in Christ Jesus. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins. He's talking about us. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering of sin. Therefore, since all of that is true, since by the blood of Jesus we have entered into this new covenant in which our sins are completely forgiven, taken away. Therefore, he says, verse 19, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, and here's the application, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, the therefore there in verse 19, and I want to take you back to it. I want you to see it again. The therefore is basically a transition in the book of Hebrews. Up until this point, the writer has been emphasizing Christology or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is vital that you get your Christology right. That is, you need to know who Jesus is. If you don't understand Jesus, you're not going to understand yourself, and you're never going to figure out what exactly your need is or why you have, uh, uh, you have to do something about your sin. In fact, you're not even ever going to really fully appreciate who and what you are. So you've got to get your Christology right. And so what the writer of Hebrews has been doing now for these nine and a half chapters or so is giving us a Christology. This is who Jesus is, and he is superior to all those things. But now anytime that you 
get theology or Christology or whatever it is when you're thinking about God, and that's what theology is, ultimately you have to apply it. Theology, Christology, or anything else is worthless if it doesn't relate to your life. And this is one of the things I think we have a problem when we come to church sometimes. We study and we want to know more about God and all of this, but we never apply it to our life. All theology is applied theology or it's wasted. And so what he does here for us is he lays out this Christology. This is who Jesus is. Now let's see how it applies to life. And here in the 19th verse, we begin a new aspect of uh, the book of Hebrews in which we take what we have learned or all these things that we've been saying about Jesus and now we're going to apply it to life. We're going to put it into practice. And you actually see this practice as he one more time says, okay, so look at what Jesus did. In verse 20, he says, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way. There is the uh, Camino de la Vida. There's the new and living way. That's where I got the title of this sermon from, from that verse. And this new and living way for people like you and me is through the curtain. Now, if we were good Jews, we would automatically recognize that when he says through the curtain, he's talking about the curtain that was hanging in that temple that was still standing when uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing this, that curtain that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies. So inside the temple proper, which was divided into, there's the holy place that had the table of showbread and the seven branch candelabra, and uh, it also had the altar of incense. And the priests went in there once a day and they refilled the oil and they laid out some new bread and they burnt some incense, which was the prayers of God's people. And the light, the, the, the candelabra was the light for God's people and, and all of this. And so there's all that symbolism in the holy place. But then there was that thick, heavy curtain. And behind that curtain was what's called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the dwelling place of God. The only furniture in there was uh, the dwelling place of God on earth, right? So they knew that God lived in heaven, but on earth, he resided in the Holy of Holies. And there was the uh, Ark of the Covenant there that had the mercy seat and then had the, uh, uh, the angel or the cherubim uh, cover on it. And once a year, the high priest went in, he slipped in behind the curtain into the presence of God. He, off- he made the offering, he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat to symbolize covering the sins of the people, and then he got out. He was not allowed to stay in there, and, uh, and uh, so he just got in, he got his work done, and then he got out, and he had to do that over and over and over again. Year after year after year, he would go in and, and uh, sprinkle the blood because he never really was able to, uh, to affect the forgiveness of sin. He just covered it up, and then there's more sin that needs to be covered more and more and more. Sin was never forgiven. Well, the writer of Hebrews has been trying to tell us that Jesus is not only our great high priest, but he is the offering. And so he went in (coughs) to the Holy of Holies and he affected the forgiveness of sin. And that's why he sat down at the right hand of the Father, because the sin is forgiven. It doesn't have to be atoned for over and over again. It's atoned once and for all. So the offering was made by the Lord Jesus and he went in. But he not only went into the Holy of Praise, He actually took us with him. And that's what he means here in verse 20 when he says that uh, 
he has uh, inaugurated for us this new and living way through the curtain that is his flesh. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross and uh, he said, it is finished, and then he died. And uh, the Gospels tell us that that curtain, this curtain we're talking about, was torn in two. And so now the way of God is wide open so that people like you and me can enter into the very dwelling place of God. This is the new and living way. The new and living way is with God or, or living with God or residing with God or entering into the presence of God. It is a new and living way. The old way of death never got us in there. The new and living way by the blood of Jesus through the veil that is his flesh, his death on the cross, gets us in to the very presence of God, this right relationship with God. This is the new and living way. Praise God. Now, now thank you for the amen. We got that, right? I mean, that really is the whole point of the sermon. Now, let me just, I just want you to get this, all right? In Christ Jesus... You are in, you are on, you are by the new and living way. You're not on that old road of death anymore. You're on this new and living way. Now, what does that mean for us? So for the next couple of minutes, let me just kind of walk you through. There's a whole lot in this passage of Scripture here. It's one of the great texts of all the Bible. I know I say that almost every Sunday, but, but I, I really mean it this time. Not that I haven't meant it other times, but... Um, the more that I study this passage of Scripture, the, just the more blessed I got. But I, just want, I don't have time to share everything. I want to give you three things this morning, what it means to be on this new and living way. And my heart's desire, <clears throat> my goal here, is that you, child of God, might get excited about what you have in Christ and this walk that you have with Christ. Because, because an, on a new and living way, you're actually walking. This, to be a Christian means you're walking with God. And, and it's affected by Jesus. He's brought you into the presence of God, so now you can walk with God. What does this new and living way look like for a child of God, someone like you and me? Let me give you three things here. A whole lot more, but I'm just going to give you three. First of all, it means walking in joy. Walking in joy. And I say that, and you might look at this, you, as you study this passage, you might say, well, hold on a minute, Brother Greg. Uh, the, the word joy is not even mentioned here. And that's true. It's not mentioned here. But it is also true that when Jesus opened the way into the very presence of God for people like you and me, so that we can now walk with God and have a right relationship with God. He did that so that we might enjoy life. So that we might enjoy this relationship. A relationship with God is designed or is, or is created for us for joy. Now, where do we see that here? Well, what we see it here is with the commands, interestingly enough. He doesn't use the word joy here, but he does give us some commands. In fact, beginning in verse uh, 22, there are actually five commands, and the first three of the commands begin with the words, let us. This is let us, not the kind of lettuce that you make a salad out of. It means let us, okay? Do this is basically, uh, is basically the word. So look at in verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart. There's command number one. 
Okay, in this right relationship with God, here's the command, draw near to God with a pure heart. Here's the second command. It's down in verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. All right? So first of all, draw near to God. Number two, hold on to the confession of your hope without wavering. That's a command. Third command is found in the next verse, verse 24. And let us watch out for one another to promote to provoke love and good works. Now we've got a responsibility to one another. Again, this is command number three. Let us watch out for one another. Did you know that you were commanded by God in the body of Christ, which is what we're talking about, for one another? Well, it's true. I mean, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, all right? Command number four, verse 25, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, he could say, let us not neglect. Uh, it could be translated that way. This is the only negative of the commands. Don't stop meeting or worshiping together. That's the command. I'll come back to that. We'll talk about that here uh, a little bit more in just a moment. And then command number five is also at the end of, um, or the next part of chapter 25, he says, and encouraging each other. Let us encourage one another. Now, all of those are commands. Beloved, listen to me. These are not suggestions. These are not, hey, here's a good idea. Maybe this would be cool if you could do something like that. No, 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 no. He says, here it is. First of all, you are commanded. Because of what Jesus did, because of how he has brought us into the very presence of God, God says, draw near to me. God says, hold on to your confession. He says, watch out for one another. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He says, encourage one another. These are the commands of God. Now, I'm emphasizing these things, and I want you to see this. The commands of God, I'm emphasizing that they're commands. These are imperative. In the Greek text, it is very clear. He's not just making subjections, uh, suggestions. He's saying, you better do this. And I'm emphasizing this because most of us, when we think about the commands of God, first of all, we think about the Ten Commandments, right? And then we think about, well, I've got to do some things. I don't like that. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like having to do what somebody else commands. I don't want to be commanded. Okay, if you want to make some suggestions, okay, I'll do the best I can. And when I think about the commands of God, I think about things that I really can't complete anyway, and they're burdensome. And you know, uh, there's a whole lot of people out there that think of God as kind of like a cosmic killjoy. You know, anytime I'm about to have fun, God's like, thou shalt not, right? I mean, God doesn't want me to have fun. God doesn't want me to have a good time. God doesn't want me to smile. And you know, I think that that's true because when I come to church and I look out across the congregation and most of us are standing there or sitting there with long faces, you know, like we just got finished sucking on a lemon, you know, and we're absolutely miserable, praise God. And, uh, and you know, that's being spiritual. The, 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 the more miserable I am, the more spiritual I am. That's the way a whole lot of people think. And God's out there, and, you know, he's trying to put his thumb down on me, and his commands are, are like to suppress me and keep me down. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Do you know, the reality is, is that the commands of God are not just not burdensome, they're actually a blessing. That God lays his commands out for us, not to harm us, not to suppress us, but to actually lift us up. 
if we could get this, if we could figure out that God really does have my best interest in mind and that when he says, hey, do this, it's actually going to be for my blessing and for my good and the, the blessing and good of others. Man, if I could get that with joy, I would follow the commands of God. Let me just give you a couple of verses of scripture and explain this to you uh, from, the, from the word of God. First of all, let me go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses now is, is uh, this, this is part of one of the last sermons that Moses preached to the children of Israel before they crossed into the promised land. And in chapter 10, verses 10 and 12, he says, or verses 12 and 13, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today. Watch this last part. For your own good. In other words, God has commanded his people. Not just so that he can lord it over them and say, hey, look at me, I'm God and you're not, you know. I mean, he's not the kind of God that, that, that tells us to do things just so that we you know, we'll have to obey. He lays these things out for us, his commands for our good. Moses said, obey the Lord, it's for your good. It'd be kind of like a parent, any good parent who had a small child that wanted to play out in the middle of Highway 36. How many parents would say, okay, well, you know, as long as you're happy, I just want you to be happy. Uh, I want you to have a good time. Just go play in the middle of Highway 36. Uh, and, and be free. <laughs> no, no, no good parent would do that. No, you're not going to play. Why? Because you know something that child doesn't know, that there's going to be cars coming along and trucks and whatnot, and they're not going to be watching, and they're going to be speeding and everything. You're going to get run over out there. Any good parent would say, hey, you're going to do this. You don't understand it. You don't like it. I don't care. You're not playing in the middle of the highway. It's for your good. That's what the scripture says that God commands us. Let me give you another verse, Psalm 100. And this is for all of us who think that in order for me to be spiritual, I've got to be miserable. Psalm 100, serve the Lord. Keyword there is serve. Serve means to do for. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs, not miserable songs. Oh, man, I got to do all this is terrible, blah, blah. No, serve him with gladness. If you can't enjoy serving God, something's wrong, beloved. Something's wrong. Here's the command. Serve the Lord and do it with gladness. Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, uh, the prophet is actually uh, prophesying these people who have been carried off into captivity and they're going to come back. And he says in Chapter 35, verse 10, and the ransom of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. In other words, God is at work in the lives of his, of his people and the result of that is joy, unending joy. And, uh, and uh, sorrow and sighing are going to run away. Go to the New Testament now, the Lord Jesus uh, speaking to, uh, to his people, he is uh, in the 13th chapter of Matthew, he is telling some parables. And he tells this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Hey, praise God. You know the kingdom of heaven is like treasure? How so? 
buried in a field that a man found and reburied, and then in his joy. You see that? Not in his misery, not in his feeling that he is obligated in some way. In his joy, he found treasure. The kingdom of God is a treasure that is joy-filled when I receive it. In his joy, it says, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field because it, now it means everything to him. There is joy in the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus says. And, uh, and you say, well, hold on a minute, Brother Greg. So now, uh, what about, what about uh, the things I've got to do for God or at church, like giving, for example? You know, you preachers, all you do is want money. And, you know, we, we do preach uh, here in this church. We preach uh, the tithe, and we preach uh, being faithful to that. And, and uh, why? Why do I tithe? Why do I uh, take? We, 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 we teach stewardship. Why should I be faithful in my giving and with the money that uh, God has provided for me? What about money? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. Okay? Watch this. Since God loves a cheerful giver. Right? Now, the command of God is for me to be faithful. Do I have to, uh, do I have to tithe and I have to give? No. He said, look, don't. If, you, if you're going to be miserable going up as you hang on to that and sticking it in the plate or whatever, keep it. If you can't give with joy, and let me tell you something, and I know that there are some of you folks here who give this same testimony. I could stand up here and tell you the joy that God gives my wife and I as we plan our budget out and our, our uh, you know, the way we're going to use the money that God has given us, and the first thing we do is we give the tithe with joy. And it produces joy within us. We get to give back to God. If you can't do it, keep it. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And he produces joy in life in Matthew chapter 5. The Lord Jesus is talking about hard times. What about hard times? Can, can I have joy in hard times? In Matthew 5, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. Because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How in the world can I be faithful to God when I'm living in a world of misery and I get knocked down and beat up and drug out and everything because I've got this relationship and enjoy, he says, rejoice and be glad because of what God has done, even in the midst of your sorry circumstances. Well, what about grief? What about when... Um, you know, someone that's very close to me dies, and I'm in suffering and sorrow over that. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Not that grief is not a real part of life. When we love and we lose someone we love, we grieve. But he says, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. In fact, if you go a little bit further in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking about all these things, he says, as grieving, yet always rejoicing. How do you do that? How can I, as grieving, yet always rejoicing? Because I have this living 
relationship with the living God. And I'm walking in it. And as I walk in obedience with my Savior, with my God, he produces within me joy. And this is why Paul's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll tell you what, I'll just go ahead and say it again. Rejoice. That's the command. Rejoice. Find joy in this walk. When you walk with God, you walk in obedience. What you're going to do is you're going to walk in joy. Beloved, listen to me. The way, this new way, of life, walking with Jesus, is a walk of joy. This is what you have in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. Praise God. I'll just go ahead and say it. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. All right. Secondly, first of all, you're going to walk in joy. Secondly, walking in freedom. Walking in freedom. This walk with God in Christ Jesus is a free walk. It's a walk of freedom. And what I mean by that, by freedom, I mean the, ob- the opposite of slavery. And there's a whole lot of different kinds of slavery. There's physical slavery, physical bondage. Slavery. There is spiritual slavery. Oppression of, you know, others on other people, and and we might call this bondage. And especially when it comes to spiritual, and, and, and one word that might characterize all that is fear. If I am walking in bondage, I'm afraid. And you know, one of those fears, and, and if we're talking about spiritual bondage, one of those fears is the fear of God. And I mean the kind of fear of God, you know, shaking kind of fear. And I'll be honest with you, there are some people that ought to fear God. In fact, if you, if you look over at verse 31, here in this 10th chapter, it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he's talking about unbelievers there. He's talking about people who are walking in sin or living in sin. It is a terrifying thing. It is a very frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because he judges sin. And if I'm living in my sin, if I'm holding on to my sin, if I'm walking in sin, one of these days I'm going to fall into the hands of a living God. And that's a terrifying thing. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. You remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and God said, uh, you can eat from any tree, but don't eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. What's going to happen? Well, on the day you eat, you're going to die. Well, let's see if that's right. So they went over and ate from the tree. Remember what happened then? Then they went and hid from God. They tried to cover themselves up, and God came walking. You know, he's going to walk with them like he has been. Hey, where where are you guys at? What's going on? Well, we hid ourselves. Why are you hiding? Because we were afraid. Why are you afraid? Because we did what you said not to do. That is, we did not obey. And we remember that you said, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. And we were afraid. You know, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And quite honestly, we're living in a world that probably ought to have a whole lot more fear of God. One of the things that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.18, when he's talking about the culture in which he was living that perfectly des- describes our culture, he says, there was no longer any fear of God. People didn't care. Yeah. I don't care about God. What God says or what God does or 
what he's going to do. I'm not afraid of God, you know. And we see people just shaking their hands at God. Turn on the television. You'll see that today, just flaunting in front of God. You take, you take all the commands of God. We don't care. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to be our own person. I can decide who and what I am for me. Nobody's going to tell me, including God Almighty. And that's what that's about. There's no fear of God in their eyes anymore. And so, and so there are people in this world, ought to fear God. What about a child of God? What about a believer? Should you be afraid of God? We know in verse 20, he says here that he has inaugurated for us this new living way through the curtain that is his flesh. And I previously mentioned that that, that curtain was that heavy veil that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies that was torn in two. And you know that high priest, he went in there year after year when the curtain was still standing there and do you know what happened when when he went in behind the curtain on the great day of atonement do you know what they did for him they tied a rope around his leg you know why they tied a rope around his leg because it was pot they were afraid because what if he went in there and he did something he what if he touched the ark of the covenant and got struck down you know there's a there's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David is trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and a guy by the name of Yuza, who is a Levite, he's, he's walking beside the cart. There's an ox cart, and they've got the Ark on the cart. They're carrying it the wrong way. They should have carried it instead of putting it on a cart. That doesn't make That's beside the point. They've got it on this cart, and the cart, you know, uh, hits a pothole or something and begins to tip, and, and Uzzah thinks that the Ark is going to fall off. He reaches up and grabs the Ark. Boom, he's struck down dead. How dare you touch the ark of the covenant of the, of the living God? And so they were worried. What happens if you're a high priest and you, that one time you go in there and you stumble or something and you have to reach out and grab hold of the ark and boom, you know, you get struck dead. Just in case that happened, you know, they put a, t- a rope on his leg so if he were to keel over dead, they could drag him out because nobody else was going to go in there. Who else was allowed to go into there? What would have happened if you, as just a common ordinary person, if you tried to go in behind the veil, you'd have been struck down immediately. You'd have been killed. If God didn't do it, they would have done it when you came out. You don't get to go into the presence of God. Nobody does, just the high priest. But now Jesus has torn that veil. And the way is wide open. Now, watch what he says. Let us draw near with a true heart. You know what he's talking about? Let us come boldly into the throne of grace. Let us all, people like me, I'm not allowed to go into the, uh, into the Holy of Holies. Yes, I am. Because of Jesus. I don't have to be afraid of God anymore. Because in him, I am not only saved, I am made right. There is no fear anymore. You know, one of the, in, in fact, it's been counted up. Someone said that God has used the word 365 times. There's one for every day. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. When God shows up, the first thing he says to his people is, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Stop being afraid. This new and living way, beloved, is opened up, and now I can come into the very presence of the living God. And notice what he says there in the last part of, um, of verse... Um, 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You know what that word assurance means? And I went over this last week with you, but let me just, let me just mention again. Assurance means I'm not afraid that I've messed up bad enough to have lost the salvation that God has given me. That's the full assurance of faith. I've got some friends in this town who uh, belong to 
another church and another uh, uh, denomination that teach that you can lose your salvation. And you know, the problem with that is, is you never can be sure then. You, you never can be sure that you're saved. Or you can, you can be saved... But then what if you do something to lose your salvation? So you never can. I mean, and what does it take to lose your salvation? Is it just one evil thought? Or do you have to do something or, or act in some way or not act in some way? Do something that God says not do or do something that God... What, what, what does it take in order to lose your salvation? You can never be sure. And if you can't ever be sure, you've got to be afraid. What if something happens to me today and yesterday I sinned in a way I lost my salvation? Now I'm going to go to hell. And so uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, no, the full assurance of our faith. Why? Because now I'm in the presence of God, and God says, I will never kick you out. He's opened the way wide open, and so now as we come into the presence of God, there is no longer anything to fear, because in the presence of God, there is perfect peace and life, no Fear. And this is why we can walk in freedom. Freedom from fear. Now I can truly live. Now I can be everything that God created me to be. Now I don't have to worry about how I'm going to mess up or whatnot. I don't, have to, uh, I don't have to cower or anything else like that. I can walk boldly with Jesus, boldly in God, with God, praise God, walking in freedom. This is what a child of God is allowed in. Christ Jesus. One final thing here real quick. So, without fear, and I'm walking with joy, fellowship. Now, entering into the Holy of Holies, I now have fellowship with the living God. And He has inaugurated for me. this relationship with God. And he says, so here's the commands. Let us draw near the true heart. Let us hold on to this confession of our hope. And then he says, and let us watch out for one another. So now there's a new aspect of this relationship with God. When I have a relationship with God, now I've got a relationship with some other people that are part of the family of God or the family of faith. That's why we call one another brothers and sisters, by the way. And we have a responsibility to one another. I mean, this is just what the Bible says. We are walking in fellowship with God, but walking in fellowship with God means I'm going to walk in fellowship with other people. If I'm not walking in fellowship with other people, with, with other believers, I can't be walking in fellowship with God. Those things go together. I need the body of Christ so that I can walk in fellowship with others which is part of my relationship with God. And notice I have a responsibility. He doesn't say, hey, here's a good idea. If you want to uh, uh, watch out for one another and pro provoke love and good works. No, that's a command. You will do this. You will watch out for one another. You will provoke one another or spur one another on, really, is, is the word there, and, uh, which kind of communicates to me because I'm an old cowboy. You know, I know what it means to wear spurs. And, and you kind of, every once in a while, we have to kick one another, maybe, all right? But we're spurring one another on. For what? Love and good works. I mean, contemplate that. How does that work out? We're not spurring one another on for misery or for hate or for uh, uh, doing bad things. That happens sometimes. That's not what it's all about. 
I'm watching out for you and you're watching out for me. Notice the command goes this way. Watch out for one another. And notice the one another here. Uh, for to spur one another on for love and good works. And then he says, and not neglecting the gathering together. And so here's the joining of the, uh, of the body together in, in something like this. It might be a small group or it might be a large group like this, but I've got a responsibility to gather with other believers. In other words, if I think that I can just sit out there as a lone range Christian, I don't understand the commands of God and I'm not obeying the commands of God. If you're neglecting the gathering of yourself together, you're sinning against God. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And I'm a, I, you know, I'm a pastor. I believe everybody ought to go to church. But I believe that because that's what God says. And notice these commands of God are for our blessing. Not to harm us, but to bless us as we bless one another. So he says uh, to promote Provoke one another for love and good works, not neglecting uh, together or together. Some are doing that. Some are in the habit of doing. And then he says encouraging one another. That is building one another up. <clears throat> and I understand, and we joke about this sometimes. You know, there are some people that are very discouraging. I mean, you know, maybe they've got the spiritual gift of discouragement. I don't know. But it, you know, kind of when you walk in, you know, they're, they're just kind of down and, and they just want to bring everybody else down. That's not what we're called to do, to lift up, to encourage one another. And notice we've got this responsibility uh, to do this. And not only do we have a responsibility, this is the command, but we have a need. We need encouraging. Everybody needs it. I need it. You need it. I need to gather. You need to gather. I need, I need what you bring and you need what I bring. We need one another. I need somebody to spur me on sometime. And you need somebody to spur you on. And he says, this is what I give you to do. This is our responsibility. And you know, as I was preparing this, I was thinking back. I, I grew up in church. I, you know, I, I went to church you know, before I was born, I'm sure. And when I was very little, I... Uh, lived with my grandparents who took me to church. My granddad was a deacon, College Heights Baptist Church in Plainview, Texas. And, and I was there every Sunday. And, and, you know, I don't remember any sermons that the pastor preached. And I was always, uh, you know, we were in the church, uh, in the worship service. I don't remember any of the sermons that the pastor preached. But you know what I do remember? I remember those uh, those ladies that taught Sunday school, and they were mostly all ladies. I don't know if any guys. I remember, you know, going into that Sunday school class and that preschool class, and there were those ladies in there. My grandmother actually played the piano, and so we had an opening assembly and did whatever. And I remember they loved me and they cared for me and they taught me the Word of God. That's what I remember. When I, uh, and I needed that, by the way, and as I went a little bit long in my, uh, in my pilgrimage, my dad got saved, and then he became a pastor. And when he was pastor of Oak Ridge Baptist Church in Weatherford, Texas, I was in church every Sunday, and I heard every one of dad's sermons. I cannot remember one sermon that dad preached. But you know what I do remember? I remember those RA leaders that taught us the RA motto and, and the RA pledge and and I can still say them to this day as a royal ambassador, I'll do my best to become a well-informed, responsible follower of Christ. I mean, here were men pouring into my life. And I needed that. I remember that. As I got a little bit older, Dad wasn't pastoring anymore, and we were members at Ridgely West Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and Brother Ron Griffin was our pastor. He was a great preacher. I don't remember one sermon that he preached, but you know what I remember? 
I remember Mr. McQuarrie, who taught ninth grade boys Sunday school. And I was in that ninth grade class. Almost every Sunday he had to break up a fight. We would shoot spit wads and we were disrespectful and all this other stuff. But he was there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday teaching, faithfully teaching the Word of God to a bunch of knucklehead young men. I'll never forget it. He poured into my life. I needed it, the body of Christ, and it showed up. A little bit further, when I was pastor in Calvary at Denison, I made it a, a, a habit just to get to church early every Sunday and, uh, and uh, because I prepare and I, I just want to pray and spend some quiet time before everybody starts showing up. And uh, I, I use every morning, I do now. And uh, about 6 o'clock, I'm here at the church on Sunday morning. And they're in Denison. I was there about 6 o'clock. And one Sunday, I didn't get there until about 6.15, 6.20. And Miss Edna Thomas was waiting at the door there. Miss Thomas, I think at that point, she was in her 80s. She had been uh, a preschool uh, teacher or nursery teacher, uh, you know, for, I mean, you know, since Moses. I think she had Moses there probably. And, but uh, she was there. She got there early every Sunday, and I went down there uh, to, the, to the class with her, and she would make some, um, uh, she would make some uh, water with, um, with Clorox in it, and she would wipe down every toy every week in the, in the nursery area. And I was like, well, Miss Thomas, you, I don't know that you really need to do that. Do you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know who's been in So every, because she loved those children, and she, I, that was just her deal. And I was, at some point, you know, she was getting, I was like, Miss Thomas, maybe you don't need to get here this early. Maybe we get somebody else who would come up here and wipe them down. She's like, okay. So we got somebody else, and there she was, you know, at 6.15, 6.20, wiping down. I mean, you couldn't stop her. The body of Christ and we need at work with I don't remember all the sermons I preached, but I remember I learned from her integrity and stick to itiveness and, and heart, and I don't know what all, but I can think of people throughout my life in the body of Christ that have taught me and trained me. Some of you folks have taught me some good lessons, some bad, maybe. I don't know, but 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 I mean we need one another, beloved. That's just my whole point. We walk in fellowship with God. Praise God. I've got a relationship with God, but praise God for the body of Christ, for brothers and sisters in Christ. We live together. And if you don't think you need the body, and by the way, if you don't think you need to be in a small group, and I know not everybody you know, gets into Sunday school or D groups or whatever. Let me tell you something. If you're missing a small group Bible study Sunday school, you are missing out on one of the great blessings that God has for you. Brothers and sisters, get in one. And when this, uh, uh, this if Sunday school is not for you, this uh, September, we're going to start D groups again. And we need folks who are willing just to, hey, I want to pour into somebody's life. I'm willing to receive. All right. So, so this is what happens in the body of Christ. This is our responsibility. I just want to ask, what about you? What about you? Who are you walking with in fellowship that can encourage you and that you can encourage who are you walking with that you're spurring on to love and good works and is doing the same thing in your life? This is a personal thing. This is a personal walk with God and with one another. 
And beloved, let me just say it again. You cannot walk in a right relationship with God if you're not walking in a right relationship with God, with believers and with the body of Christ. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He has put us together in this body for fellowship, to walk in fellowship. And there's an urgency here, just real quick. Look down at the last part of verse 25. He says, all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, what's he talking about there? It might be the second coming of Christ he's talking about, and praise God, Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus, maybe today. But the further along we go, folks, you know this, the day is approaching. It's getting darker. It's getting uglier. The day of testing, the day of trial, the day of tribulation is fast approaching, and we need each other. We, he says, all the more do this as we see the day approaching. Walk in fellowship. Now, let me just pause right here and just say one other thing about this. Are we a perfect church? No. And we're not a perfect church because I'm a member of it. When I joined, this church became imperfect. Well, when you joined, it became imperfect too because nobody's perfect. And we mess up and we fail. And sometimes we offend one another and sometimes we say things we shouldn't say and do things we shouldn't do. We've got about 1,400 members of the, in our church here. About three-fourths of them, about three-fourths of that 1,400 members um, have neglected the gathering or forsaken the gathering together. That's just the reality. I mean, I'm just telling you the truth. For what reason? I don't know. Maybe... Maybe they got upset. Maybe the preacher said something. Maybe somebody else said something. Maybe, you know, somebody did something, you know, for whatever reason. I just want to point out to you, he doesn't say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together if you have a perfect church. Or forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and encourage one another if nobody upsets you or makes you mad or whatnot. No, this is just the command of all God's people. And watch this. It's my responsibility. It's our responsibility individually. It's your responsibility. It's not somebody else. It's not everybody else. It's me. It's us to walk in fellowship. All right, that's the sermon. This walk, this new and living way, which is opposite from the way of death, this new and living way, is walking in joy. It's walking in, um, what was the second one? Somebody help me out here. Freedom, thank you. And walking in fellowship. How is your walk going? Father, I pray today that as you, Lord, stir our hearts, as you move within our hearts, you would help us, Lord, God, to be found faithful as we walk boldly in, before the throne of grace. As we come into your presence with, with thanksgiving and singing, Lord, in the very presence of God for fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord, for that. But God, may we be found faithful in this walk with you and this walk with others. And God, it just occurs to me today that maybe somebody here today is not, is not at all walking with you. And I pray, Lord, that they would find today that, that veil torn wide open. And they would say, yeah, uh, here we go. Father, I pray as, as the Lord Jesus leads us in to your very presence, I pray that your sweet salvation would just flow through this place. And God, 
there'd be somebody here today who'd say yes to Jesus. And Father, for those of us who might find ourselves, you know, on the outs or we're not really happy in you, we can't seem to find the joy that you've said is ours, or, or maybe we're bound up by fear, all the things that, that bind us up, or, or Father, maybe we've forsaken, you know, the, the body. Lord, I pray today that as you work, in our hearts as you draw us back and you call us back. I thank you that none of us have strayed so far that we can't come back in, into the fellowship and into the fold. Lord, would you do it today as you lead and guide our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.